from Outside Magazine and PRX. This is the science of survival. (sighs) The largest fire in U.S. history has a couple different names. Some people call it the Great Fire of 1910, or the Big Blow-Up. It was also called the Devil's Broom Fire, and a forester at the time called it a veritable red demon from hell. Mostly, though, it's called the Big Burn. The Big Burn torched more than 3 million acres of the Northern Rockies in Idaho, Colorado, Montana, and Wyoming. It killed 86 people. It led Edward Pulaski to invent the Pulaski, which is like a pickaxe designed for scraping and cutting the forest floor, and is still probably the most important firefighting tool ever made. But more than anything else, the Big Burn changed the way we thought about forest fires as a country. It was traumatic. In the aftermath of the Big Burn, the Forest Service adopted a policy of extreme fire suppression, including the 9 a.m. rule, which was that if a fire started, the Forest Service's goal would be to have it under control by 9 a.m. the next morning. This worked great until World War II started, and all the young men who would normally fight these fires went over to Europe instead. So the Forest Service began an education campaign. In 1944, a poster appeared with a bear wearing a ranger hat. With a ranger's hat and shovel and a pair of dungarees, you will find him in the forest always sniffing The bear was pouring a bucket of water on a campfire. Above the caption, Smokey says, care will prevent nine out of ten forest fires. Smokey the bear, Smokey the bear, prowling and a-growling and a-sniffing the air. And before you write in to tell us that he's technically named Smokey Bear, not Smokey the Bear, We know. The songwriters just needed an extra word to fit the rhythm of their song. Anyway, for decades, Smokey has preached fire suppression and prevention. He's been the hero we've needed in order to cast wildfires as the villain. And it's worked. Before the Forest Service began actively suppressing fires, between 15 and 20 million acres burned every year. Now, it averages around 5 million. And some of those were burning on purpose. But that also means that everything that should burn each year doesn't. And now forests are jam-packed with way too much timber, brush, and dead wood. As a result, fires today burn hotter and faster than ever before, which makes it more difficult to predict their movements. Today on the show, in the first episode of a four-part series on wildfires, Robbie Carver has a story of a fire that took almost everyone by surprise, and how it's actually not entirely Smokey Bear's fault. Here's Robbie. On August 18, 2011, a small swamp fire began to smolder in the upper regions of the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, just shy of the Canadian border. Most likely started by a lightning strike, the fire was stuck in a bog, and by all appearances wasn't going anywhere. A little natural burn is good for the forest, and local weather forecasts called for a 50% chance of rain that evening, and plenty of fuel-damping humidity. By all accounts, it looked to be a fire that would last a few more days and then just kind of go away on its own. Small fires happen all the time. The Forest Service tracks between 8 and 10,000 fires each year, but only a couple hundred ever become problems. So if you're Greg Welch, you don't let a little smoke in the distance ruin your vacation plans. Well, I'm Greg Welch, and uh, I was raised in a town called Owasso, Michigan, which is in southern lower Michigan. 
Greg's what you would call an adventure guy. He hikes, kayaks, climbs. Now living up in northern lower Michigan, and I've been up here for about 22 years. And for all those years, he's been adventuring with his wife, Julie. And they've been exploring the Boundary Waters pretty much since the day they met. Since we were dating, we've been going up there. And um, so it was just our annual trip. It was 2011. And in early September, they set out for a 10-day kayaking trip, starting near Kawashiwi Lake. It's an experience that we just love because it's a great way to get away from everything. Um, you just don't see anybody because not many people go that far. They're not willing to hike the five-mile portages and, you know, get into those lakes that are super remote. So for me, it's um, it's always been a little bit challenging and a little bit scary because... I've always told Greg, you know, if something happens to you, I can't drag you out of here. (laughs) We were driving north on the highway towards the ranger station, and uh, we saw some smoke uh, blowing across the highway and also some ash falling from the sky. Greg and Julie knew that there were fires in the area, but for the first week, the Pagami Creek fire had just sat there in the bog, stewing. The burn was nowhere near any buildings or other human assets. The bog was surrounded by lakes, and the prediction modeling program, which ran 2,500 simulations taking into account historical data, the weather, time of year, wind direction, and type of forest, predicted minimal movement. It was just going to sit there. But after a week of smoldering, the humidity unexpectedly plummeted to 18%, sucking the moisture out of the forest. Then, the wind picked up, and dozens of little spot fires began springing up around Pagami Creek. Fire managers saw this, and decided that rather than try to chase all of them, they would create a single fire to pin against the surrounding lakes, so it could burn out. This is a normal fire management strategy. It's like deciding to steer one big tiger into a cage instead of a few dozen cats. But those fire managers were expecting rain and it never showed up. On September 9th, a small finger of fire slipped past the containment area, and once it did, over the next few days, the Pagami Creek fire ballooned to 5,000 acres. The fire turned south, creating a flank about seven miles long, far beyond what the computer models had predicted. So they ran them again, and established a new safety perimeter. According to the simulations, there was basically zero chance that the fire would reach Kawashiwi Lake, where Greg and Julie were headed. But as they pulled into the ranger station, they could see smoke blooming over the forest, and they were understandably concerned. There was another ranger uh, standing at the counter that was not there previously, and he was introduced himself as being the local official that was in charge of the fire. So we went through a review of where we were planning on going, and he gave us some advice on a couple of areas to avoid if, if the fire did move that far, but they were not expecting it to. I did ask the question, you know, well, what if the fire gets bad? Or, and he said, you know, well, there's no worry. I think you'll be fine. And if anything happens, we'll come and get you. Uh, we felt comfortable with what he had told us, and, and uh, we didn't feel like there was a threat at the time. So with the ranger's reassurance, they made their way to the launch site. Greg and Julie each had a kayak, and at about 3 p.m., they pushed out into the water. 
Well, it was a beautiful sunny day. It was, you know, like 75, 80, sunny, blue sky, except for a big, you could see kind of a mushroom cloud off in the distance, which was interesting. We just paddled to the north end of the lake, which is just south of the, of the next lake, and we found a campsite there, and that's where we spent the night there. And that was a fairly uneventful, you know, evening, just a nice, quiet evening, quite warm. Uh, very uh, comfortable conditions. The next morning, September 12th, they got up early and paddled north, calling it a day in the early afternoon. It was barely noon, but two long portages awaited them that were best done tomorrow in the cooler early morning. We got some snacks out, lunch snacks, and as we were doing that, uh, it started getting a little smokier in the campsite. There was some smoke starting to blow in. And we kind of both asked the question, do you think the fire's becoming closer? Because it, it really seemed like it. You know, and we both kind of blew it off and said, no, the wind's been on our back all day, which is the opposite direction of where the fire is. And, you know, we'd see animals running or <laughs> something silly like that. <laughs> so we just kind of blew it off that, nah, that's not the fire, you know. Julie said to me, why don't you go out and go fishing, get some fish for tonight, and I'll set up camp. So she started setting up the tent while I started getting ready to go fishing. You know, the it just kept getting smokier and smokier, and we noticed at one point that the birch trees kind of looked fluorescent in color. It was really bizarre. Bizarre, but cool. Greg got out his camera to take some shots of the trees, but when he started reviewing the photos on the screen and he realized it may be time to start getting concerned. We were very confused at that point because what we were seeing with our own eyes versus what the camera was seeing was completely different. What it was picking up was it was picking up these orange streaks actually in the sky, and it they kind of looked like fire. Uh, so at that point, now we were certainly talking about the fire in terms of is this thing coming? Is it closer than we think it is? That type of thing. They needed a better view. So Greg jumped in his kayak and began paddling up to a river a few strokes away. He could hear the faint sound of cracking branches off in the distance. And I crested the, the mouth of this river. And that's when I realized that we had a very major situation on our hands. What they didn't know was that a rare combination of atmospheric events had collided over Pagami Creek, and suddenly the forest was primed for an unprecedented burn. The drop in humidity had created the driest conditions in over 140 years, turning the normally moist snags and greenery in the bog into ready-to-burn kindling. Wind speeds were higher than predicted as well, and more importantly, the wind just kept blowing, lasting hours longer than normal. And the, the kicker on the weather that really caused our fire models to fail entirely there was that uh, the atmospheric instability was much, much greater than normally accompanies these frontal systems. This is Tim Sexton. My name is Tim Sexton. I'm currently the program manager for the Wildland Fire Research, Development, and Applications Program at the National Fire Center in Boise, Idaho. In 2011... Tim Sexton was a district ranger in the Superior National Forest, which is where the Boundary Waters are. 
Tim was part of the crew monitoring Pagami Creek and helped run the prediction software. Up to that point, he says, all these unexpected wind changes and humidity drops had made modeling the fire more difficult, but they could do it. It was the atmospheric instability that really threw their models off. And the way we measure stability in the atmosphere is the temperature gradient from the surface to the upper atmosphere. And the steeper the gradient, the more unstable the atmosphere is. Atmospheric instability is when the temperature of the air at the surface of the Earth is considerably warmer than the air above it. Imagine a hot air balloon rising. In a stable atmosphere, the temperature doesn't change much as you gain elevation, so the relationship between the hot air inside the balloon and the air outside stays constant, and the balloon rises at a consistent speed. But if it's very cold in the upper atmosphere and very warm at the surface, that hot air balloon will rise like a rocket. In other words, the colder the air, the faster that hot air wants to rise, whether it's a balloon or the smoke and embers of a wildfire. And as that hot air rises, it creates a vacuum at the surface that sucks in wind and oxygen. The result is a convection column that creates a positive feedback loop. The more it burns, the bigger it gets. It's almost like uh, having a, a fire um, with the flue completely open and the door open and using bellows to, to get it to burn hotter. And this unexpected atmospheric instability wreaks havoc on the prediction programs. They don't really address it. And so this factor thrown in there caused the, the models to forecast that the fire would not burn anywhere near as rapidly uh, as what it actually did. But none of this would have mattered so much had the forest itself not been nearly a century overdue for a fire. That part of the Boundary Waters had not seen a fire in uh, about 150 years. Thanks to Smoky Bear and fire suppression, the Boundary Waters were primed to burn. The term for this is senescence, basically a fancy way of saying that something is very, very old and has gradually stopped behaving as it should. Just like how a 100-year-old human body can more easily succumb to disease or injury, a forest that hasn't burned for too long is primed for a catastrophic eruption. In this case, the Pagami Creek area was about as senescent as a forest can get. It had been hoarding flammable underbrush for 150 years. And we did a retrospective look at fire occurrence, and since 1970, in the footprint of the Pagami Creek fire, we had extinguished, I want to say, 50 fires that had we allowed those to burn would have put a patchwork of different age class uh, balsam fir forests on the landscape. And many of those patches would have been somewhat resistant to fire. But instead of being fire resistant, the forest was packed with fuel. All the stuff that should have already burned over the course of 50 fires was now going up all at once on the driest day in 140 years. And then, the wind shifted again, blowing at over 20 miles per hour and from a direction that was now perpendicular to the fire. What had been a long, thin line of flame cutting through the wilderness like a knife was now a seven-mile wall of heat, making its way like a bulldozer. So the fire ran eight miles in about two hours, and I've never seen a fire anywhere in the United States in timber burn that fast. Greg and Julie were right in its path. All of a sudden, it just became super loud, like the wind really picked up, and I, it started making a 
kind of a strange sound. Uh, uh, it's even hard to explain. Um, a thumping or something like that. And I heard a huge tree uh, fall behind me, which was, I would guess it to be only a couple hundred yards away. And it just hit me at that moment that, oh my God, that's the fire. It's really coming. At that point, I could see the fire and it was unreal. It was just enormous. It was just from, from east to west, north to south. It was as far as you could see. It was in the treetops, even above the treetops. Uh, the flames were blowing completely horizontally and they were obviously heading in our direction. The fire was less than a mile away and Julie was still on the shore. Neither of them knew how long they had before it got to them. Turned around and I'm paddling back now very quickly, obviously, and I'm yelling and heard that we got to get out of there, that type of thing. And um, as soon as I hit the shore, uh, she was already in action, uh, jumping down the cliff, this 25-foot bank. I didn't even bother to climb, um, which was probably stupid looking back on that, too, because I could have broken a leg. Julie had acted fast, ditching their tent, packing their dry bags and hurling them down the embankment before launching herself. But when they reached each other at the shore, Julie realized she didn't have her life jacket. It was in the tent. Greg ran back to get it. I couldn't see the tent, and it was probably 20 yards away from me, I would say. It was, you know, pretty intense. So I ran up to the tent and just kind of dropped down on my knees, and I couldn't see inside the tent because the smoke had already filled the tent. Reaching blindly, Greg found Julie's life jacket and then grabbed their deflated air mattresses as well. And then I, uh, I stood up and uh, I kind of paused for just a minute because I was really terrified at that moment. That was getting very loud at this point. It kind of sounded like a freight train, kind of a noise coming through the woods. The whole sky started getting black. We couldn't see the sun anymore. And uh, when Greg came down the embankment with my life jacket, he threw it at me, and I grabbed it, I put it on one shoulder, and I shoved off, and the minute I did that, complete blackness surrounded me. It was like someone put a bag over my head or something. It was complete darkness, and I had no idea where, you know, Greg was. I instantly turned around to look for him because I didn't know where he was. And she just kind of disappeared into the, into the smoke. About a, you know, a very short period of time later, within seconds, I could hear this huge thunderous roar coming up behind me. And all I could see was a wall of fire. And it was just insane. And I, you know, at that moment, that's when I panicked. They couldn't see or hear each other, but they knew their only chance at surviving was to get out onto the lake. Julie had set out already, and Greg pushed off into the smoke. I didn't know if he made it. I didn't have a map. I didn't know where I was. I could not see Julie at all. She was lost in the smoke. I started screaming his name and um, until finally um, some wind came along, big gust of wind, and it kind of lifted the smoke for a second. And I could actually see her and she could see me. And then the wind was so strong that it actually pushed her sideways uh, across the waves and literally picked her and the boat up out of the water a few feet. And it flipped over and she dropped back into the water. And I watched the kayak uh, go end over end over top of the water. 
and it just disappeared into the smoke. When I came back up, my boat was just gone. I mean, it was just nowhere in sight. And I, luckily, I had hung on to my paddle, though, and I actually used that um, as kind of a, a life ring. I used, I put it in between my legs and was using it to help me float because the, the waves became about three-foot waves at that point, and um, every wave that hit me, I was going under, so even with a life jacket on. Greg tried to fight his way to Julie, but 35-mile-per-hour wind gusts shot his boat right past her, and there was no chance of paddling back. So he rolled out of his kayak and began to swim with the boat in tow. When they reached each other, they realized just how bad things really were. It was just crazy because when I got in my boat, I thought we were going to go across the lake and get, you know, get the heck out of there. And then all of a sudden it's 360 degrees fire everywhere you look. So it was kind of a devastating moment. I, I said to him, I said, oh, my God, we're going to die. This is crazy. There's nowhere to go. Uh, we were only maybe a foot away from each other and even screaming. We could just barely hear each other. I, you know, I literally thought to myself, you know, this might be the last day right now. They were trapped. Trees were exploding all around them, sending plumes of burning pine needles into the darkness. It was literally raining fire. It was kind of like, uh, if you've ever been like in a snowstorm before where you're heading into the wind and the snow is hitting your face and you kind of have to guard your face and close your eyes. That's what it was like. It was just like that, except for it was burning, burning embers. Yeah, we had to keep our backs to the wind because if you tried to look that direction, it was just pure coals and embers and stuff flying in your face. It was just crazy. All the all the land around us was on fire. There's islands on these, many of these lakes, and this one included, and the islands were on fire. Huddled together in the water, Greg and Julie contemplated their fate. The smoke was overwhelming, and they pulled some fleece from Greg's kayak to use as a filter. It helped, but not much. Julie mentioned our daughters. Uh, We have two daughters, and um, we just made a decision together right there that we were not going to, you know, give up. For the next hour, Greg and Julie fought against the wind that kept pushing them toward shore and toward fire. It was exhausting, and they knew they couldn't keep it up all night. Not only were they getting tired, they were getting very, very cold, even with fire in every direction. The hypothermia was starting to set in, especially on Julie. She was shaking uh, erratically. Finally, they decided to risk getting close enough to the shore that they could stand in the shallows, where they could at least keep most of their bodies out of the water. Fire or not, they had to get on to dry land. We didn't walk very far. It was 15, maybe 20 steps. And we actually ran into a very large rock. So we had a quick conversation that we were going to get on top of the rock instead of making it to shore. Freezing shaking and terrified they reached the rock and began to scramble up bringing their kayak with them it would be a cold fearful night but with luck the raging fire wouldn't reach them 
But that's when everything changed. It was just an amazing change of events. As fires burn through greenery, the moisture in those plants has to go somewhere. So it goes up, with the rest of the smoke and hot air. Over the past few hours, a monstrous plume had been building directly above Greg and Julie, forming a tower of smoke miles wide. But at the top of the plume, the moisture from the burned bushes and trees was condensing back together. Here's Tim Sexton again. Some of the top of the plume was well over 30, 35,000 feet in elevation. And uh, when it's up that high, it's actually uh, forming kind of an ice cap. The higher it got, the more the moisture condensed, building into droplets, becoming harder for the heat of the fire to hold up. Until, all at once, the whole column collapsed. The last thing Greg and Julie expected as they scrambled onto a rock in the middle of an inferno was to get completely, utterly drenched. It was just bizarre, you know. Here we are in the middle of a forest fire and then it's raining buckets. You know, if you've ever uh, been in your car on the highway when it starts raining so hard that you can't see and you actually have to pull off the road because you're afraid of hitting something, um, that is how the rain felt. And then it started hailing, huge hail, like the size of nickels. We were in shorts and t-shirts, and Julie had lost her boots, and, you know, we weren't well protected for that hail coming down. So uh, Julie happened to remember those two uh, deflated air mattresses I grabbed out of the tent. They were in the kayak, so she grabbed those. We threw those over our heads and our legs uh, just to protect us from the hail. Lightning started, and thunder, caused by the buildup of electrical charge as ice particles fell through the air. As Greg and Julie huddled under their mattresses, the heavy, wet air slammed to the ground, dousing the surrounding flames. And then... All of a sudden, everything just stopped. It just... The sun came back out, and the fire was gone, and it was pretty crazy. I was jumping up and down and screaming at the fire and just, you know, really, really pumped up. I just was shaking my head at him because I was sitting here thinking, okay, that was the end of the world. I don't know why he's screaming. (laughs) It was a really good feeling. I really felt, you know, I, I thought about, boy, is it good to be alive, you know. It was just a very relieved feeling to know that you had made it through such a violent experience. Greg was ecstatic, and Julie incredulous. They began to take stock of their situation. Luckily, they still had their food bag. Even better, they found half a cherry pie in it, left over from lunch on their drive up. Greg heated it on their camp stove, and that and some hot water helped Julie warm up. A tarp served as their tent, and they spent a fitful night on the ground, which was still glowing red. They were worried that the fire might return, but they were warm and relieved, and for the time being, they were safe. And then uh, the next morning, we got up right away as soon as the sun came up, and we actually found Julie's kayak, um, and it was still okay. Um, So it was real eerie to uh, paddle through that area, and the, the trees are all smoldering, and the rocks are all smoldering, and 
it was just a really strange uh, environment change from the day before. The fire may have gone out around them, but it hadn't extinguished completely. In fact, the plume collapse they experienced was only one of a number that took place on September 12th, as the plume rebuilt, gained too much weight, collapsed, and rebuilt again. By the time Greg and Julie made it back to their truck, which was thankfully untouched, over 93,000 acres had burned. Over the following days, fire crews managed to contain the fire, and the weather, finally, began to cooperate. And in the months and years since then, the forest has more than recovered. When you look at the uh, effect of the fire ecologically, it's been a tremendous boon to moose habitat in the Boundary Waters and a very long swath of the southern portion of the Boundary Waters is now in very good condition from the standpoint of being fire resilient. Now that the Boundary Waters have burned, it'll be a long time before they burn again. And in that way, the Pagami Creek Fire did what all fires do. It cleared out the underbrush, thinned out trees, created more space and less competition among plants, so that the forest that survived was healthier. Which is great. But it was also just dumb luck that a fire this extreme and this fast didn't happen closer to human settlements closer to people with no lake to jump into. After Greg and Julie emerged from the Boundary Waters, they decided that a close call with a forest fire was actually no reason to cut a vacation short. Yeah, um, we were actually only two days into our, what was supposed to be a 10-day vacation, so we actually decided to stay in the area and just stay at a hotel and be a tourist, so to speak. And just, you know, hung out at hotel and went out to eat and, you know, still had a nice time, so. Which I think was probably needed after such a traumatic experience. I don't think it probably would have been a good idea to come home and jump right back into my life. Sometimes, when we survive a close call, it haunts us. We replay the event over and over. We avoid environments that trigger memory-driven anxiety. We feel changed. But other times, that moment after isn't filled with fear. It's a rush. We're left feeling exhilarated and powerful, like we just conquered death. That was Greg. After the experience, um, it just didn't mess with me too much. Um, you know, I kind of looked at it as a as an experience that I was almost glad I went through because how many people get to do something like that and walk away from it? Um, you know, we weren't, we were not injured at all. We didn't even have a, a burn mark or anything. Um, you know, we, we walked away from that uh, terrible situation totally unscathed in terms of physical problems. Um, for me, you know, I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose anybody. Now, if I lost my wife in that fire, that would be completely different. I would not be telling you what I'm telling you right now, but I didn't. You know, I, I just look at it as a, as a positive experience. It just was not a big negative for me. I don't know why, but it isn't. So. So if you could see me right now, I'm flushed, I'm shaking. <laughs> I hate talking about it. Greg, it's his favorite lifetime whatever. He loves to talk about it, but I hate it. 
it makes me a nervous wreck. I, my stomach gets in knots and I just, I have huge anxiety over it. Um, and I actually, uh, I admit that I actually don't even like going back to the boundary waters now. It scares the hell out of me. Uh, I do it because Greg loves it and I know he loves it. And I hope that someday I can overcome the fear that I have. You know, I get out there and it's, for me now, it's scary. I, you know, we've been back four or five times, I think, since the fire. And the whole time I'm out there, I'm kind of on, on edge and I have anxiety and, you know, the wind blows, it scares me. In a lot of ways, Greg and Julie's reactions to the fire are perfect reflections of the different ways there are to look at wildfires. Intellectually, we know they do good. They're essential to a healthy forest ecosystem, and once it burns through, we're safe from fires for a while. But get a little closer, and fires are terrible, scary things that destroy everything, including you if you're in its path. And even though the Forest Service has stopped its policy of fire suppression no matter what, wildfires are getting worse. At the moment, there is a backlog of about 60 million acres in the U.S. that are at a very high risk of burning, primed with too much undergrowth from too many years of fire suppression. But that's not the only issue. According to Tim Sexton, our forests are getting hotter and drier and less fire-resistant every year. The complicating factor associated with this is the 60 million acres have been identified at this point in time. Every year we treat some, but every year we gain new acres that are have uh, grown into that uh, high or, or very high category. The uh, climate that we base that high and very high category on is changing. So uh, an area we may have treated that would be resistant to or resilient from a fire of the 90s may not be resistant to a fire of the 2020s because of this ever-increasingly dangerous climate that we're getting into with the climate change that is uh, affecting our weather that affects our, our wildfires. Smokey Bear tells us that we should be careful with fire in order to save the forest. But that's not really how it works anymore. We're careful with fire to save ourselves. Take a look at this map. We now have 61 uncontained large fires in 15 western states. This is now threatening close to 5,000 homes and businesses, and it's just one of 88 large fires scorching the nation right now. And the worst of the fires, the so-called car fire in Northern California. 83,000 acres burned. Three more people have been killed. With the heat showing no signs of relenting. One battalion chief calls it unprecedented how the fire rolled through the city and says weather conditions are creating a worst-case scenario. It turns out that preventing forest fires is short-sighted. If we want to save the forest, if we want to save ourselves, we have to burn it. More on that next time. That's Robbie Carver. This piece was based on a story by Frank Buras that originally ran on Outside Online. Music and sound design by Robbie. This piece was produced and edited by me, Peter Frickwright. A very big thanks to Greg and especially Julie Welch for talking with us. Also thanks to Matt Mikus and Ann Bailey. 
This episode of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, economic performance, and wildfires. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.